This episode is brought to you thanks to the generous contribution of a listener, Michael. And I'd like to welcome our newest members, Leon, Eric, who issued last week's challenge and was good to his word, Mark, Jeffrey, Nathan, Laura, Michelle, Victoria, Travis, Andrew, and the Titus family. And special thanks to member Heather for being awesome and putting up with some rather difficult PayPal issues. Now, Peter from the forum suggested that I check out the April 12th episode of the BBC History Extra podcast. And I did. And frankly, it's excellent. In it, Gillian Havel talks about the Roman invasion of Britain, and she covers Aulus Plautius, Claudius, the Heliton Helmet, and more. It's good stuff. You should really check it out. Finally, a key collaborator in the show was just accepted into pretty much the most prestigious program in her field. She's a bit bashful about it and doesn't want me to congratulate her or mention her name on air, but I'm going to have to congratulate her. So hey, this is awesome, and we're all very proud of you. Now today we're going to do a forest view of what we will be talking about over the next few months, and then after this episode, we'll be getting down into the trees down into the nitty-gritty. I figure this is the best way for you to have a firm grasp of what's going on and what I'm talking about, since this is a pretty murky area of history. Now, last week, we spoke about biases, and one of the biases we tend to have regarding this period is that when the Western Roman Empire collapsed, it absolutely vanished. That Rome disappeared, and the entire Western world plunged into darkness. And there certainly were significant losses during this period, And Rome had indeed been largely kicked in the jimmy. But that being said, I'd like to make an odd proposal. It's odd because we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the loss of Britain to the barbarians. But what I would like to suggest is that Britannia wasn't the weakest part of the Western Roman Empire, but rather it was the strongest. Within a hundred years of the withdrawal of Rome from Britannia, the Western provinces of Rome would be under barbarian control. All except for Britannia. In Britannia, during that same time, as much as half of the land was held by Brits. It wouldn't be until Edward I that foreign rule would be extended to the Britons. And in fact, there's evidence of the importation of Mediterranean pottery in the late 5th century in Ireland, Wales, and southwest Britain. Think about that. Britannia was initially the edge of the world. It was a terrifying possession of Oceanus. Then, it was a rebellious place to put battle-hardened leaders or imperial embarrassments. Eventually, it became the jewel of the empire. Then, it went back to being a backwater province, before getting abandoned. But by the end of the 5th century, which we'll get to soon, most of the Western Roman Empire will be under the rule of barbarians. Rome had vanished from the West. And yet, in Wales, we still have Latin being used, We see evidence of Roman measurements being employed, and we even have Mediterranean pottery appearing. A hundred years after Rome's abandonment of Britannia, we will see that this isn't a backwater province any longer. You could even argue that there's evidence of it being a civilized Mediterranean of the north, at least in Wales and Cornwall. In fact, there are over 200 Latin inscriptions in the Celtic West that are dated from between the withdrawal of Rome through the 7th century. Latin was also being used for land grants and other important documents for quite some time. And considering that Latin was largely lost in the region that would become England, that's pretty significant. Moreover, the Britons and Wales were also rapidly converting to Christianity, which was the official religion of the Roman Empire. 
and that was a stark contrast to what was going on with their Anglo-Saxon neighbors. Though British Christianity wasn't Roman Christianity, it had its own flavor, and one that would end up creating a rift later on in our story. But the point is that Rome might have pulled out of Britannia, and it might have collapsed on the continent. But in Wales, much of the Romano-British way of life continued. In many ways, it was the last holdout of that ancient empire. But you really can't make that same argument for England. You see, England had barbarians to contend with. So enter the Saxons. So what happened with these Saxons? Well, Zosimus says that prior to the pullout, Britain was under heavy attack by barbarians, and another source mentions that there was a major Saxon incursion in 408. Now, Saxon was a term used by Roman writers to describe the inhabitants who lived in the North German plain, roughly between the Elbe and the Weiser, and those who lived in the southern part of the Danish peninsula. They were named after their terrifying sword, the Sax. And these people meant business. Bishop Sidonius Apollinaris wrote in about 470 on how these Saxons would raid the coast of Aquitaine, and how they exceeded in all other raiders in brutality, how they were completely at home on the sea, and how they would strike without warning. He also told of how these Saxon raiders would drown or crucify one in ten of their captives as a sacrifice. Now, he was writing from 470, so this was quite a bit after the Saxon incursion we're talking about, but it is possible that these were the same Saxons that Britannia was dealing with. Even more interesting is the possibility that Sidonius was writing about the Saxons of Britain. After all, 470 was the period that we're told that Britain was dealing with barbarian invasions. And can you think of a better place for the Saxon culture to relocate other than Britain? One of their defining characteristics was how they were adept sailors. And Britain is an ideal location for a culture like that. Even Tacitus was overwhelmed by the maritime nature of the island, of its rivers and estuaries. A seafaring culture could do very well in a territory such as Britain. But regardless, the Saxons were a force to be reckoned with, and Sidonius was understandably terrified of them. And here we have Zosimus telling us that they came over in force, possibly in 408. In response, he tells us that the Britons took up arms and defended themselves, and freed their cities only to have the Roman emperor tell them to look out for themselves. Now, if this is true, it would mean that even though the Britons had managed to win a major victory, they were still quite worried about future attacks and sought the protection of Rome. But no luck there. Rome was over it. And so the military was gone, or at least mostly gone. The various emperors and usurpers had looted the island of soldiers for decades, and now Honorius suggested that the Brits just develop a stiff upper lip. This is a significant change from the days of the Roman occupation. I mean, the Roman forces in Britannia at the height of the occupation probably numbered at around 50,000. That's larger than even the medieval kings of England could field, and was about 10 times the size of the standing army that any medieval king of England would be able to maintain during his reign. And yet the Romans managed to pull it off. But now they were gone. But maybe Rome thought that the Britons could handle themselves for a little bit, and after the issues on the continent were dealt with, Rome could return. After all, the Britons weren't entirely defenseless. They had their towns, and those often had stone walls, and many had towers by this point. That might not seem like much considering that they were without legions, but it was actually shockingly impressive. 
Even by Roman standards, the defenses of Britannia were exceptionally strong. But the problem is that the pullout, combined with the vigorous invasions by their neighbors, didn't exactly provide the most stable of homelands. And things just seemed to be going downhill in a hurry. Now what about the British government that was trying to hold things together? Well, we don't really know too much about what happened to the governors of Britannia following the withdrawal of Rome. The two that we know of, Chrysanthus and Victorinus, didn't stick around. One went to Constantinople and the other went to Toulouse and then Italy. Which supports the general impression that there was a flight of non-Britons from the island during this period. And we don't know how long any centralized power remained in Britain following the withdrawal. For example, we don't know if any of the non-British usurper administrators stayed in Britannia. Nor do we know if any troops stayed. But there is an interesting comment made in the historical record that suggests that some might have stuck around. Gildas wrote of Ambrosius Aurelianus and his battles against the Saxon invaders. He also made reference to how Ambrosius' parents had worn the purple. This was most likely a reference to an imperial title. And how he was, quote, perhaps last of the Romans, end quote. But what exactly does that mean? Was he the last of the Roman legions staying behind? Or does that mean that he was a Romanized Briton, and that Gildas was calling attention to the fact that he might have been the last of the Romanized British? Well, that's pretty unlikely, because Gildas does draw distinctions between Britons and Romans elsewhere in his writings. Also, we have evidence that the Romanized Britons did continue beyond Gildas's time, at least in Wales. So maybe there were some Romans who stayed behind, or at least some Romanized foreigners. And maybe those staying behind continued to hold positions of power. Later in the 9th century, Ambrosius was referred to as king among all the kings of the British people, which suggests some sort of centralized authority. Maybe he was a Roman, or a Latin-speaking foreigner, who managed to hold a title that was similar to a high king or an overking of kings, sort of like what we talked about in prior podcasts. But there's something else that we should talk about. Given the history of this period and Ambrosius's alleged unification of the land, not to mention his successful battles, it does make me wonder if his story got mixed together with the tale of Arthur over the centuries that followed. But that also is kind of besides the point. The takeaway here is that Rome is out. Constantine III is out. And someone might have stepped into that vacuum. And among all of that, there might have been Romans who not only stuck around but might have also retained some positions of power. Though we can't know for sure. And Ambrosius and others who took the mantle of leadership might have been British or non-Roman foreigners. We just don't know. But consider the difficulty that these unknown people, probably men, faced when they took power following the withdrawal of Rome in 410. Sure, Britain had some experience in striking it out on their own. The island has been independent many times in its past, including during times of great peril and threats of invasion and raids. But the legions had largely been withdrawn by Constantine III, and Constantine's administrators had been expelled, and now Honorius said that the island was on its own, presumably pulling what few troops may have remained back to Italy to defend the continental empire. And can you blame him? Alaric was on the warpath. Honorius needed all the help he could get. But while it might be understandable that Honorius did this, it wasn't great for Britain. 
and this would have been a hell of a situation for those mysterious people who stepped into the power vacuum and tried to rule. And don't forget that Britannia wasn't a single province at the time that Rome withdrew. It had been broken up into four provinces. Britannia was, to a certain extent, fractured. Now, we're in a big blank spot in history, and we don't know who ruled what and when, so we can't say whether or not, following 410, it was initially unified or fractured. But let's look at what society was like prior to the withdrawal. You had four different provinces with separate capitals and governors. You had a single unified governmental allegiance, not to mention single military figures, and of course you had trade relationships, cultural ties, shared languages, and the like. After all, these provinces were all part of a single diocese, which was not yet a purely religious title, you'll recall. So there were plenty of things to keep the Romano-Britons unified. However, there were also plenty of things that could have torn them apart. In the power vacuum that was left behind by Constantine III and Rome, I'm sure there were natives, foreigners, and Romans who all felt like they could try their hand at running things. And who's to say that the government of Britannia Prima would bow to the ruler of Britannia Secunda? What if they all put up their own rulers, and each of them felt that they should run the entirety of the diocese? What then? War? Would they have time for an internal war? From what we've heard, they were under assault from numerous barbarian tribes. Going to war in that situation would be a huge gift to their enemies, so maybe they stayed together due to military needs. Who knows? From our modern times, we've seen situations like this lead to the rise of strongmen and tyrants. And we'll later see references to Vortiger and the tyrant, so if we're to believe those sources, maybe there was a rise in strongmen. But we'll get to that later. Now, as we continue talking about this period, we will start to see evidence of two Britons, the Germanic Anglo-Saxon Britain and the native Latin-speaking Christian Britain. Procopius, who was writing at the same time as Gildas, spoke about these two Britons in his accounts, but we really don't know too much about them. We don't even know the boundaries of their territories. But we at least have some sort of corroboration of Gildas' account of a foreign invasion. What we can assume is that by the 6th century, Britain was no longer unified, nor was what was to become England. Both the British parts of Britain, as well as the Germanic parts of Britain, had a variety of kings. Gildas himself mentions five kingdoms, though he was writing in about 550, so that doesn't really tell us much about what was going on in 410. Gildas also seems to mention that one or more of the dynasties that were ruling in Britain were descended from Ambrosius Aurelianus, which means that they might have been Roman in origin. So there were a variety of other monarchs, none of which were loved by Gildas. But the interesting thing is that some of them seem to have been Latin-speaking Christian kings. For example, King Vortiper's tomb had Latin markings on it. Additionally, while it seems that much of Wales was Christian, most of Germanic Britain was pagan until St. Augustine showed up. Or at least the kings of Anglo-Saxon Britain were pagan. So again, this reflects that in the 140 years that followed the withdrawal of Rome to the time when Gildas was writing, the island had fractured not only politically, with multiple monarchs and dynasties, but also culturally with different languages and religions all crammed onto the island. This must have led to quite a bit of conflict, which was referenced by the many sources that we have. And it's somewhat corroborated by the fact that a great number of people who had the means to leave Britain decided to leg it. 
We know this because in 460, the Britons arrived in force at the Amorican Peninsula, either as refugees or invaders, or maybe both. But their arrival is why the region to this day is still known as Brittany, or Little Britain, rather than the Amorican Peninsula. And actually, they even brought their names with them. Cornwall and Dumnonia became Cornwall and Dumnonia. The interesting thing to note here is that they're also echoing the early history of the area, where Gaul and Britannia were allied against the Romans, so the Britons and Gauls remain close following the pullout of Rome, which could explain why Brittany was the logical safe haven for the British refugees. And that expatriation from Britain would actually continue for about 100 years. For example, by the 570s, there was also a British settlement in northwest Spain that even had a bishop of its own. Meanwhile, the Britons that remained, especially in Wales and the southwest, went back to their hill forts, having abandoned the towns and villages they'd used for nearly four centuries. What all of this tells us is that the 5th century was a period of substantial change in Britain. It had been Roman, both in actual government as well as in culture, for a very long time. I mean, Britain had been part of Rome since 43 CE. To put that into context, if you take Shakespeare's time, and you go all the way to now, that's about the length of time that Britain was Roman. That's a hell of a long time. And now it was all over. This wasn't just a substantial change. It was a catastrophic one in many respects. But what happened? Just because there was a cultural change doesn't mean you have to leave your towns, right? So why would they leave their towns and return to hill forts? Sure, the pottery industry collapsed, and that probably indicates that the entire economy collapsed with it, but why would they suddenly leap backwards 400 years? Why would the population take a nosedive? What happened here? I mean, if we look at the accounts and the archaeological record, we're talking about a tremendous leap backwards. The masonry, pottery, centralized heating, and all the various technological leaps Britannia was part of had vanished. How could people just forget how to make pottery or conduct repairs on masonry? Well, it might be helpful to think about this period in terms of what would happen if things broke down in our modern era. Every now and then, the sun puts out a gigantic pulse of energy. Imagine if one of those hit the earth directly. It would fry every transistor on the planet, and suddenly we'd lack all power. And to make matters worse, it would take months, if not years, to get our infrastructure up to the point where we could start making transistors again. And that's assuming that society didn't collapse in the meantime, and given that famine would probably follow such a total breakdown, that's unlikely. There probably would be very little law and order. Now consider, in the midst of all this, the windows that you have in your house. If some marauding band broke one of those windows, do you think you'd have the resources and the know-how to make a new pane of glass to replace it? Or would you just try and use whatever you had to seal the hole? It wouldn't be a repair, but more of a patching of the issue. I mean, those with the knowledge to make the panes of glass probably wouldn't have the infrastructure required to actually produce and transport it to the people who needed it. Now, in the middle of all this chaos, chances are those transistors probably aren't being produced. And if they are, they probably are being stolen or can't effectively be transported. So the lights aren't coming back on. And months turn to years. Broken panes of glass turn into holes in the roof and issues with the walls. It isn't like we can just start manufacturing siding on our own. So eventually, our little homes that we're so used to wouldn't be that practical anymore. They'd be dark 
and fragile and poorly maintained, so we probably eventually leave them and use materials available to us to patch together new homes. Shanties, log cabins, and what have you. And life would leap backwards in a hurry. All because we lost our infrastructure that made those repairs possible. And that's essentially what happened to the Romano-British. Part of the problem was too much specialization. You had entire towns that were essentially dedicated to only a few functions. And that relies on a very stable and efficient system. A system that was no longer present. Manufacturers might be hundreds of miles from key suppliers and hundreds of miles from key trade locations. So pottery and masonry basically died out. And don't forget that the roofs were made of tile. And let's set aside the impracticality of having tile roofs in a British climate and just look at how difficult it would be to make and repair a roof in that situation. You would need clay, kilns, tools, firewood, transportation, labor, packing material, storefronts, the list goes on and on. So it wasn't too long before quarries, mortar, bricks, and tiles would all start to disappear, largely because they just didn't have a need for them anymore because the infrastructure wouldn't allow for them to be properly used. And along with the materials, the skills to use those materials would also vanish. Even the pottery wheel disappears, and now we just find hand-formed pottery. And as for the homes... Well, those would be made largely just out of wood, thatch, and dry stone walling. So we've got drafty timber walls, rotting, leaking roofs, and filthy floors, right? Well, that's not entirely accurate. You see, the thing about it is, is that thatch isn't a terrible material. It's actually a pretty good one. It's better than tile. So maybe this wasn't so much of a step backwards as just a step in a different direction. Thatch and timber is pretty good for Britain. But you still have a collapsing economy. Despite the rediscovery of our prior useful technologies, things are still falling apart. And with that breakdown of the economy would have come famine. You see, food production was also a huge problem during this period. Farms had basically industrialized in the later Romano-British period. But industrialized farms require a complex system of trade, which in turn requires reliable currency, travel, and security. When farms were able to turn their crops into coin, they were able to build advancements, develop new technologies, and find ways to optimize production. Well, they couldn't do that now. They probably couldn't even reliably defend their fields from raiders, much less brave the roads to get their goods to market. Everything had broken down. And consequently, many of these industrialized farms probably shrank in size or disappeared. And the thing is that Britannia's population was pretty huge and relied upon the stability that Rome provided. Well, now that was gone. So how are you going to manage to feed all those people? Well, consequently, we see a massive drop in population in Britannia, as well as in the Western world, for that matter. It was so significant, in fact, that it would take over a thousand years for Britain to get its population back up to snuff. A thousand-year drop. It's pretty bad. And this is actually how bad things were. Even livestock got smaller and more sickly during this period. They basically returned to prehistoric sizes. Given that, it won't surprise you that at some point early on, all British urban life died. All of it. Many of the villas were abandoned by 420, and the public towns and small towns just ceased to exist. Take Aboricum, for example. It was one of the great towns of the north. It was where Constantine was elevated. This is a big deal. Well, in the early 5th century, it was basically reclaimed by Britannia. 
the once bustling public town, was now being overtaken by a swampy marshland. We found all manner of fossilized creatures inside the town that indicate that it was a haven for beetles, amphibians, mice, weasels, voles, and you name it. The once pristine streets and townhouses were now decaying beneath marsh and vegetation. Another example of what these people were going through is found in Canterbury. We don't know exactly what happened there, but we found a family, a man, woman, two young children, and two dogs. And they've been buried in a grass-lined pit within the city walls. And there's evidence that at least one of the children died due to violence. We might never know what happened to this family, but given that they were buried within the walls of the town, which Roman law strictly forbade, and the evidence of violence, it suggests that the town was really no longer functioning as a town. Maybe they were some of the last inhabitants, using it as shelter during the barbarian raids of the 5th century. But regardless of what happened, it paints a clear picture of a Britannia that was no longer Roman, and was in absolute crisis. So next time, let's talk about the stories we have regarding this time in history, and see what we can decipher about what happened. Okay, well that was a bit of a downer episode, but not all these episodes can be uplifting and heroic. So if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us over at Facebook at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And you can also check out our new website. It's pretty spiffy. It's thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And through that, you can actually get to our forums where we're having a lot of fun. So please come and join us. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>